Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The eyes desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's affairs. Welcome to the History of Ireland. First off, a quick apology for the delay in this episode. I spent just over a week fighting off quite a nasty little throat infection, and it totally messed with my productivity. Back and rearing to go now, though. In the last episode, we told the story of the death of Michael Collins. With Griffith having died the week before, the landscape of Irish politics was changed forever. The new fledgling state had lost both its leading figures, and safe to say, everyone was feeling a little shell-shocked. Colin's body was taken by sea from Cork to Dublin, where funeral was held on Monday, August 28, 1922. The coffin was actually pulled by horses borrowed from the British. As one sergeant wrote, in the 17th battery was my subsection wagon team of six black horses. These were handed to the Irish Free State together with a coffin board and drew the gun carriage at Michael Collins' funeral. All the equipment for the horses was handed over with them. It was handed over in immaculate condition. Log chains and logs burnished, stable heads, collars, leather soaked and buckles polished. Of course, the horses were trimmed out, manes hogged, hells clipped, tails pulled, all the spit and polish as it should be. I don't know why, but there's something amazing about the British soldiers who'd been fighting Collins and the Irish for so long, turning around and giving him nothing but the best equipment for his funeral. And what a funeral it was. Over 500,000 people attended, something like a fifth of the entire population of Ireland. Collins' body was left in state in the city hall and everyone from your average Joe Bloggs to the highest-ranking members of the church came and paid their respects. The photos really are quite something. Streets packed following the procession as it made its way from the city centre to Glasnevin Cemetery. One newspaper described how the nation today paid its last tribute to the dead soldier chief. Never in living memory have such crowds thronged the streets of Dublin. Think of the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth, the pomp and spectacle that went with that. Honestly, this would have been similar, though maybe a less lavish affair. The newspaper goes on to paint a dramatic picture. The whole enormous throng stood patiently, reverently silent. Scarcely a sound was heard, an awesome stillness settled on the wonderful crowd of mourners when the tram ceased 
and the last sound of traffic died out of the streets. At the graveyard, it was Richard Mulcahy, for all intents and purposes, Colin's right-hand man, who gave the eulogy. And it really is something. I won't go into the whole thing here, but I'll read you a bit as it's fascinating to hear what was going through the man's mind. This is what he said. Our country today is bent under a sorrow such it has not been bent under for many a year. Our minds are cold, empty, wordless, and without sound. But it is only our weaknesses that are bent under this great sorrow that we meet with today. All that is strong in us is strengthened by the memory of that great hero and that great legend who is now laid to rest. Pages have been written by him in the hearts of our people that will never find themselves in print. But we lived, some of us, with these intimate pages and those pages that will reach history, meager though they be, will do good to our country and will inspire us through many a dark hour. Finished saying, Michael Collins had only a few minutes to live and to speak after he received his death wound. And the only word he spoke in these few moments was Emmett. He called to the comrade alongside him, the comrade of many fights and many plans. And I'm sure that he felt in calling that one name that he was calling around him the whole men of Ireland, that he might speak the word of comradeship and love. There's so much to unpack in here. It's, it's fascinating. For one, you can already see how Collins was being mythologized. The young man was becoming a legend. That's what Mulcahy says here. And he's being used to, to pull the country together. But there is another side to this as well. Historians Anne Dolan and Will Murphy point out that for a lot of these men, most under 40, this was both a political loss and a crushing personal loss. Both Griffith and Collins had been close friends with those in the Irish movement for years. How could they not be? And now suddenly, both were just gone. I think it's an important point to make because it's easy to think of historical figures dying and succumbing to the pomp, the newspaper articles, and yes, the legend, the myth-making. But it's just as easy to forget that these were people who left behind families and friends and loved ones. You really do just have to pause and take a moment for Kitty Kiernan, Michael Collins' fiancé, or Maud Griffith, Arthur Griffith's wife. What must they have been feeling at this point? Nothing short of a tragedy. Weirdly, Collins was left in an unmarked grave until 1939, at which time De Valera, who was in charge at this point, sorry for the spoilers, finally allowed John Collins, Michael's brother, to place a gravestone down. But Dev made sure it would only cost £300, and he wanted it to be humble and plain. Apparently, only a priest, an altar boy, and Collins's brother Sean were there to see the grave erected. Some say it was Dev being spiteful. Others say it was just Dev being typically austere and not wanting to create a fanfare. For his own part, Dev would later write that he broke down in tears when he heard of Collins's death. And on the anti-treaty side, there was a mixed and rather complicated reaction to Collins's death. 
this should have been a major win. Imagine how ecstatic one would feel having killed the leader of the enemy. And some did see it as a win. One anti-treaty soldier wrote, Congratulations on having killed off the two infamies, Griffith and Collins. How does little Jack feel about M. Collins? Glad, I suppose. Liam Lynch, leader of the anti-treaty forces, wrote, It was a splendid achievement from a military point of view. Collins' loss is one which they cannot fill. But many people, and more than is normal for the death of an enemy, mourned rather than celebrated. Dan Breen, the famous Republican who kicked off the whole War of Independence and was very anti-treaty, admitted in 1968 that Collins' death was the sadness of my life. I reacted like you react when you hear of the death of your mother. I cried. I didn't cry when Sean Tracy was killed. Collins was the only one who moved me to tears. In Collins' death, it was the sadness of a civil war when a fellow you like very much but didn't agree with you is killed. That makes it very sad. I cried. I never remember crying before or since, except when I got a hammering in school. While Martin Walton, another anti-treaty IRA man, simply wrote, Stab. Absolute pain. I fell back in the bed. Unbelievable. Utterly unbelievable. It's said that those involved in the ambush simply, quote, departed in silence when they finally heard the news that Collins was dead. While later, one man, Jim Hurley, who claimed to be there, asked Collins' brother, Sean, how could we do it? We were too young. I was only 19. That is the questioning of a man racked with guilt, not reveling in his enemy's defeat. Unfortunately, though, Collins' death dragged the conflict into an even bloodier phase, and reprisals were quick to occur. On Saturday the 26th, the weekend after Collins' death and before his funeral, two anti-treaty soldiers, Alfred Coley, 21, and Sean Cole, 19, were stopped at a checkpoint and caught with revolvers. They were bundled into a car and carried off towards Whitehall, where they were shot and their bodies were dumped. Some argue that the men who stopped them, wearing, quote, a mix of National Army uniforms and plain clothes, were drunk, looking for anyone to unleash their grief upon. A similar thing happened to Bernard Daly, a grocer's assistant, who was abducted and shot with his body abandoned in Malahide. And this wasn't just confined to Dublin. In Limerick, Harry Brazier, an anti-treaty IRA man, was arrested at work and also shot while on the 8th of September, Timothy Kennefick's body was found, bearing the horrific signs of torture. Now, the Irish Free State actually tried to blame the IRA for these murders, but it was clear they'd been carried out by unsanctioned Irish Free State soldiers. In fact, Emmett Dalton confirmed that Coley, Cole and Kennefick were all killed by members of the squad. And considering Vinnie Byrne, a leader in the squad, wrote at the time of Collins' death that I'd have shot any bloody diehards I came across. It's hard to see these as anything but knee-jerk reactions to the death of their leader. As historian Brian Hanley puts it, they were intensely loyal to Michael Collins, and this 
over any other factor, had guaranteed their support for the treaty. After Colin's death, they were overwhelmed with a desire for revenge, but also robbed of the one leader who could control them. As I said, this was the start of the war becoming even more brutal than ever. And if we force ourselves to take a moment to think about what a personal loss it must have been the friends and family of Collins and Griffith, we must do the same for the young lads killed as revenge. Alfred Coley, Sean Cole, Bernard Daly, Timothy Kennethick and many more. All dead, too young, leaving broken-hearted families and friends. As I say, this is a point where the conflict really does move into a darker stage. Now, the last thing we need to cover regarding Michael Collins' death, and arguably the most important thing, is that of his replacement. Who was to fill the power vacuum left by Collins and Griffith's death? Well, to answer that question, let's introduce William T. Cosgrave. Cosgrave hasn't really popped up in our narrative yet, as he mostly kept to the background. He was a modest, unassuming man who'd been plugging away in the political wing of Sinn Féin for over a decade. Born in 1880 in Dublin, son of a publican, Cosgrave was pretty much a career politician. He was a founding member of Sinn Féin and acted as Sinn Féin Dublin councillor from 1909 to 1922. He also joined the Volunteers in 1913 and was sentenced to death for taking part in the 1916 Rising. Luckily for Cosgrave, this got commuted to a life sentence in Frongrock, and he was eventually let out. During the War of Independence, he became Minister for Local Government and did a mighty job bringing local councils over to the Republican side. In the treaty debates, he was pro-treaty and had become an important member of the leadership, along with Griffith and Collins. Initially, people wanted Richard Mulcahy or Owen McNeil to take the leadership of the country. Kevin O'Higgins, a politician we'll discuss in the future, campaigned fiercely for Mulcahy. But Mulcahy himself was having none of it. In what really is an amazingly commendable move, Mulcahy argued that he could not control both the government and the army at the same time. Mulcahy didn't want Ireland to slip into a situation was ruled by a military junta. As he put it, O'Higgins' idea was that I should be head of the government. There was no move to discuss that, and as far as I was concerned, the position with regard to the army was that I didn't believe that the army could be handled by anyone except myself after Collins' death. Therefore, the question of my taking over the government would be an utter impossibility at that time. You've got to hand it to Mulcahy. The man had morals. This is some Cincinnati stuff. He turned down power when it was right there for the taking, for the good of the country. Whether he would have gained enough support is hard to say. Most people backed Cosgrave, and for good reason. He was a highly experienced politician and well-liked across the pro-treaty side. I think there was a sense among the TDs at the time that with all the chaos... They needed a conservative, pro-democratic leader, and Cosgrave was their man. So, on August 30th, he became chairman of the provincial government and president of Dáil Éireann on September 9th. 
the newspaper described him as follows. It would be hard to imagine anybody who's less true to what we used to consider the Sinn Féin type than Mr. Cosgrave. It is not only that he does not dress in a regulation way, trench coat, legging and slouch hat and the rest of it, but he has a thoroughly conservative face. What is ironic is that the bloodiest time of the Irish Civil War was not overseen by Michael Collins, who many saw as the leader of a murder gang, and instead by this rather conservative career politician. But we'll explore more about Cosgrave and how the war developed after Collins next time. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening, and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes, or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website, or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys, and if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole, with music by Liam Doyle, and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.